0: And welcome to the Embassy of Ireland Canada podcast series. This year is the 75th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, a landmark achievement by the United Nations, meeting in the wake of World War II. To mark this occasion and to discuss human rights, gender and conflict, Ambassador McKee's guest is Canada's Ambassador for Women, Peace and Security, Jacqueline O'Neill. We hope you enjoy. Jacqueline, thanks for coming in and having a chat about the UN Declaration of Human Rights. Um, But your speciality and what you've been devoting your professional career, as well as your personal passion to, is Women, Peace and Security. You've been the ambassador for the Canadian government on this since 2019, if I'm right. And you've been extended to 2025, which is always a good sign. (laughs) Can you tell me exactly what is Women, Peace and Security?
1: I'm glad you asked. Uh, So Women, Peace, and Security is the idea that it is not only a woman's right to be involved in decisions that affect her own life, but that when women are involved in every decision that affects their lives, Mm. the outcomes are better. So it's both a a rights-based argument, as we'll talk about a little bit later, uh, and it, it talks. It relates to the fact that, especially in areas of peace and security, so negotiating mm. peace agreements or reforming police and militaries after conflict or drafting constitutions, women tend to be disproportionately excluded. So, uh, if I can. Ex- Give you a quick history on this the space. So the idea itself is not new. So even around where we're sitting right now in Ottawa, we, there have been Indigenous women in in Canada who've been negotiating conflict uh, between Indigenous groups. They've been uh, advocating for the for management of natural resources, mm. et cetera. They've been they've been involved in issues of peace and, and security. They've had similar experiences to what women who came together for the World Congress on Women in Beijing in 1995. There were women, 40,000 women came together from countries all around the world, including many that were experiencing war Northern Mm -hmm. Ireland, Mm -hmm. um, Guatemala, the Philippines, Rwanda, Bosnia, every part of the world. And they said, we have very different cultures, Mm. but very similar experiences when it comes to peace and security. So we're fighting in wars as combatants, we're delivering Mm. services to keep communities going. We're trying to get parties to go to negotiations. Mm. We're trying to get negotiations going, going, Mm. uh, reaching agreements, implementing them. Uh, But when it comes time for formal processes to have an official peace process or an official government creating an interim government following a peace process, peace negotiations were largely excluded. Mm. And they said this is both a rights issue And it's an effectiveness issue. So they got the world's highest security-focused body, the UN Security Council, Mm -hmm. in the year 2000 to pass a resolution which uh shouldn't have been as revolutionary as it was, <laughs> uh, but the, revolution, or the resolution said for the first time that women are not only victims of conflict, mm. but they're powerful agents of change who should be included in every aspect of peace and security. Right. So since then, there have been nine additional resolutions at the UN. Countries have created the, their own national strategies. Uh, both Ireland and yeah. Canada have, have really developed areas of work around it. Uh, but it's the, it's essentially the idea that women belong in these conversations.
0: So that's the famous uh, UN Resolution 1325, and a number of countries signed up. And over the last 20 years, I think we've got an awful lot more countries signed up. So it's been going yeah. so good from a, that point of view. Yeah. So it's a
1: Security Council resolution. So it's uh, technically <clears throat> binding on all member yeah. states of the UN. Uh, a few years after it was passed, the Secretary General of the UN said, "Well, it's it's good that we have this in principle. We need to bring this to life uh, in different parts of the world." So uh, they proposed that countries create national action plans on right. peace and security. Uh, so uh, Canada, for example, we created our first in 2011. Mm-hmm. At the time, there were about 23 other countries that had these plans. Mm-hmm. Now there are around 107, 108, including Ireland. And,
0: yeah, actually, it was one of the things when I when I set up the uh, conflict resolution unit. It was one of the things we focused on trying to achieve. So we began that process of our first national action plan, and we're now on our third. And I think yep. you're beginning your third.
1: We're about to launch our third. Yeah.
0: So what kind? What kind of? Uh, where's your focus on this? I mean, how do you how do you affect change? I mean, wh- what are who are your stakeholders? Mm-hmm. Where do you, wh- what's the most most effective thing you can do?
1: So a few different dif- a few different things. So. In terms of stakeholders for a plan, it's actually government officials. It's, it's us right. who implements it, right? So we have to design it with civil society and in coordination with women uh, and women-led groups in Canada and around the world who tell us what they think is most needed. Uh, and then we have to write this plan for changes that we need internally, both our actions and our composition, et cetera. Uh, the most the most significant thing I think that we can do is build this into the DNA of our organization. So, as Global Affairs Canada is doing mm. a conflict analysis and looking at risk factors and what areas of the world are most likely to to see violence in the in the coming year in the mm. coming two years, um, are we thinking about some of these early warning indicators that, right. that uh, have gender dimensions? Are we looking at what uh, women working on the front lines of communities are saying are, mm. are happening? You know, we see instances like women saying, uh, I'm increasingly being told I can't drive alone, or I'm, my brother or my husband are telling me that the, kids, the girls can't go to school. These kinds right. of things are concerning because they portend uh, bigger and different things. Are we looking at that? We're, we also need to, to build a lot of this work into the way that uh, that we structure ourselves. So are we supporting our diplomats? Are we supporting mm. our police and military to not just believe that gender equality is important, but to know how it relates to their daily work.
0: And how you mentioned the, the military and the police, and I know you work with the Army and with the RCMP, and of course, like Ireland, Canada has a very proud tradition of peacekeeping. So what are the kind of things that you can do um, in, in sensitizing or training a peacekeeping force around issues like this. I know, for example, in the Irish Army in Sudan, you know, because of the 1325 training, they discovered that w- women were very vulnerable when they went to w- collect water and, mm-hmm. and firewood. I mean vulnerable yeah. to rape and, 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 and attacks. So they changed the times of the patrols, things like that. Is that the kind exactly. of thing we're talking about?
1: That's part of it, yeah. yeah. Um, wait, the way we frame a fair amount of that is talking about greater situational awareness right Mm. like you're you're a a canadian armed forces member you're a peacekeeper you're on patrol what you're trying to do is understand the environment you're working in the threats in that environment the opportunities in that environment and the argument is not that oh women are more peaceful than men or Mm. women are more likely to kind of be in the streets calling for your help than Mm. men are but you know we have different dynamics. There's you know lots of examples along the line of what you just said. One uh, one of my favorites is one of the provincial reconstruction teams in Afghanistan was talking was looking at gender in the mission and how they were thinking about uh, you know ensuring that they're they're in tune with broader sets of the community. It's kind of the male elders who are who are either speak English or or were self-appointed spokespeople, etc. And they said that one of the things that they they identified. They had a number of women in the in the um, in the mission, the the women officers who were speaking with women in communities, and they said one of the questions they asked regularly was, "What are you most looking forward to?" So yeah. Not like where are the spies, where are the traps, who's selling out who, but what are you most looking forward mm. to? And one of the things that they heard consistently was they were looking forward to a wedding that was coming two weeks from, right. them, which was going to be a huge wedding. Literally hundreds of cars driving into the region, driving through where there would be checkpoints, etc. And the, and they were able to pass that information on something that seems so innocuous. Boss. But it means hundreds of cars coming into the community uh, and not something you want to get sprung on you uh, when you're manning an outpost uh um, in an environment that's already tense.
0: And sometimes that can be hard to measure where you avoided conflict. I mean, the, the conflict should. that happens, you kind of, it's on the radar and it's happened, but the stuff that you've managed to head off with the past is kind of interesting. Well,
1: um, and if, if, if yeah, I, can, I mean, that's one of the, the biggest challenges, I think, of, of a lot of people taking this work very seriously is that, you look at the composition of peace negotiations, for example, yeah. the majority of the people around the table are the ones who've taken up arms, yeah. who present the greatest threats, who have you know realized the biggest uh, threat to the existence of the other group. You're not necessarily including those who've been working for peace or yeah. who have been not uh, taking a violent approach. And so you know, you've, you've hit the nail on the head in, in yeah. many ways of um, we also have to recognize both the prevention that that various different groups do, but also whatever what systems have we created that incentivize people taking dramatic action in yeah. order to get to a decision-making yeah.
0: table? Now you're a very uh, passionate advocate for the inclusion of women in peace negotiations, and I remember after um, uh, 1325 was passed, I remember one of the... Uh, I think it was Brona Hines, part of the Women's Coalition, who were involved in the negotiation of the Good Friday Agreement. She said, oh, my God, she said, I wish we had 1325 on the table when we were negotiating the Good Friday Agreement. If we'd had that, we could have put it in. But, uh, but nonetheless, they were very effective participants in the negotiations. And they, they achieved what you talk about, which is include, making sure everybody's included in the negotiations, and particularly the outcome, that no issue... Was small enough to 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 ignore that there there were a, a range of um, a range of views that if it was just left to the kind of the protagonists of the conflict, it would have been a much lesser agreement. Um, but could you expand a bit on on why it's so important that women are involved in a, in a peace negotiation, and also um, the degree to which that has been a success? Because it's it's been kind of up and down a bit in terms of the number of agreements in which women are participants. Yeah. And, and I was reading that in the Secretary-General's very thorough report on, on 3025, uh, which came out recently.
1: Sure. I, I'd love to go back to the example of Northern Ireland. So. Um, the so big picture, what, what we've studied over years, the fact that when there is a significant representation of women at peace talks, and I emphasize significant because right. we're not just saying, oh, you can throw a woman on Token, this term and yeah, bring yeah, your sister yeah. here and, yeah. and that, therefore they'll change everything. Um, but when there's real meaningful representation, a couple things happen. <clears throat> One, the content of what is being discussed is different, Mm. and just referenced. So uh, we've documented, and globally people have documented, that the issues being discussed are broadened. And often they go to issues that tend to be the root cause of the conflicts in the first place or deeply related to them. So it's less about sort of who gets which ministry and where the border exactly is placed, Northern Ireland being a prime example of women raising the issue of integrated education. So from the very youngest stages, what blueprint are we laying in people's minds about mm. their, their neighbor, their fellow citizen, etc. Um, so that was something you know we saw in, in Guatemala. Women were the ones who raised police power, the abuses right. of police power and, mm. and civilian oversight of the police. Uh, Darfur, women talked about food security. Water access yeah. to water, as you just referenced, women mm. being primarily responsible, primarily responsible for collecting water. So I emphasize this because it's not an issue of we need women there to talk about rape during war, to talk about women's rights generally, but they raise a broader set so, of issues. And you
0: were in Colombia recently as well, exactly. which yeah, exactly. And, and
1: Colombia is a great example both of substance. If they women have also, you know, we also know that they affect the process, tone, the the way it's it's gone. So Colombia is a great example. Uh, the The process between the government and the FARC, the opposition group, the FARC, um, had a really interesting model. They had a main peace negotiating table. So they the parties met there, the government, the FARC, over many, many months, periodically in and out. They had a main negotiating table. They also had what they called various subcommissions. Right. So kind of like working groups on different right. themes, different issues. And they had a gender subcommission. Mm-hmm. And the, that was half women, half men. Uh, the people on it reviewed the different provisions. Is this fair? Is this not? So things like land and inheritance, yes. uh, our inheritance yeah. practices, or laws that can can women inherit a farm property? Can for example you get it yeah. from your mom mm. can people pass that all these all these issues uh, that end up affecting people and they also because there was a, a gender subcommission, they had advocated to hear direct testimony from victims of the conflict so because of them it was the first documented time in any peace process where the two protagonists as you noted were um, Sat at a table and they heard directly from testimony from victims who'd been victims of both sides, right, of yeah, violence on yeah. both sides, and had to sit with the impact of that work. And so it, it brought a very different, as they report, uh, dynamic yeah, to it. So yeah, yeah, yeah. and, and Colombia in its current uh, current round of negotiations with the ELN, hmm. uh, women and men are about fifty fifty representation. So, yeah. Yeah. So we're we're learning, but yeah. as you said, we're not. Uh, the numbers actually of UN led. Uh, negotiations or mediation the representation of women is actually decreasing
0: yeah yeah that's going down yeah three years. i mean it's kind of it's, i mean it's sobering from that point of view and uh, i remember talking to uh, a young colleague of mine actually it was a discussion we organized for bridges day last year um bridges day as you know is kind of Entered the Irish calendar now as uh, first of February as a day to celebrate women and their empowerment and talents and contribution, but we had a discussion around 1325 with Sally Armstrong and my colleague from New York, and she said, "I'm not sure that 1325 would pass." Yeah. Twenty years later, she yeah. said, it, it, what would, it, "Would that surprise you to hear a comment like that?"
1: I've heard it many times before. Right. And it's actually, I, I wouldn't want to risk it. I guess. Right. That's the bottom yeah. Line. So, yeah. So you know, just to, if I can just step back. And to see what how this is changing globally. So, big picture, we're seeing an increase in authoritarianism everywhere. Right? We're seeing rollbacks in democracy. We're seeing some people call it an epidemic of coups. Yeah. Uh, We're seeing anti-democratic behavior that is shrinking space for civil society voices, for community voices, for non-traditional actors to to be influencing governance. Um, So that it's within that context. We're also seeing a really deliberate and organized resistance to women's rights movements. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's appearing in a whole bunch of different ways. I think I I kind of have a a theory that a lot of this stuff happened in the year 2000 and around because I don't think that many people felt truly threatened by it. It was sort of like, Mm. this is important and women should be doing this. But, you know, as long as it doesn't really affect our power structures internally, then... But now it's because it's gained traction that its It's very success has been, made it a target and and threatening. Hmm. And I think we see a lot of it, it goes hand in hand with the increase in authoritarianism where uh, I think we see a lot of kind of strong men for the most part, overwhelmingly most part governments uh, who don't want to be held accountable by their own people. They don't, it's not the UN they're worried about. It's not even sanctions, et cetera. They're, They're resistant to open up Right. Uh, to be more transparent, less corrupt, have more eyes on what they're doing, and ultimately share power. Right. So, right. would we get thirteen twenty-five again? I don't know. But mm. the 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 savviest advocates around the UN and other other groups are saying we're not going to try.
0: Yeah. So we're at a funny moment where, you know, equally, uh, and Sally Armstrong was very strong on this that that things have got better over the last twenty twenty-five. They're definitely better. But as you say, the dynamic is it creates its own kind of resistance. Yeah. So I suppose the message is to push on through.
1: There's, I see no other way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. And, and some people have uh, have talked. To, I've talked to a range of people who, who worked on big social movements as well, and they said that the biggest challenges come before your biggest breakthroughs. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's the hope we have to have, and we also have, we just have to be strategic. I mean, the, the adversaries of this work are well funded, they're organized, mm. they're and not just to give examples. You know, um, Russia has has very much uh, recognized that there are some divides within traditional alliances mm. on things uh, related to sexual rights and reproductive health, right. on various other issues. It's in their interest to have these alliances divided, and so they're being provocative in trying to, to force discussion, force yes. language, force resolution, um, force different speakers to, to brief other groups, et cetera. So. We have to be thoughtful too, and not let ourselves be become pawns of a of a bigger uh, power game uh, that's being played. Um, so there, you know, there is a lot of process. There's also huge regression. I mean, think of Afghanistan. The, oh yeah, the,
0: yeah, the yeah,
1: Epic scale of the Taliban. Of, and, yeah, the, yeah, the way that yeah. uh, you know there there was massive progress and a major reminder that progress is not linear and we can't count on it. Being. Mm. And so mm. while well, hopefully the the range of Afghan women who continue to advocate for their own rights will prevail over the longer term, I mean, this is a massive, massive boomerang and, and we see that we see epic or uh, shades of that in other places and we just have to be extremely v- vigilant, vigilant on that. it. So.
0: Yeah. Now when you, when, when you kind of, um, when you're promoting, 1325 on women, peace and security. How conscious of, are are you of the 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 kind of the the overall human rights approach, as has been set out effectively in 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 the UN uh, declaration formulated back in 1948? But how conscious are you that you're taking a rights-based approach? That it's it's not just a gendered issue. That this is actually part of a of a whole in a way a movement or a value system yeah. um, which as you say feels under threat or at least it's universal application feels under threat in yeah. the age that we live in.
1: I'm super conscious of it yeah. in Canada uh, very much we're, we're very deliberate about naming that because yeah. and, and I was talking to a colleague the other day uh, about women in peacekeeping right. and we were talking about these big conferences that happen peacekeeping ministerials mm. and other and the conversation related to women in peacekeeping. Often, if you go to these big events, they start with speeches about the value of having women peacekeepers, and they go right to mm. women and see, you know, understand community dynamics differently. They bring this kind of information. They build trust in communities, etc. That's fine. We also don't want to create this idea that women have to have added value to be able to serve. Right. So the question should be, first of all, do they have a right to serve? Does right. the institution have a right to reduce any barriers to their participation? And secondly, can they serve? Can they compete? So the, the right. conversations a lot are, are not, um, do women have a right to or not? And what is the obligation of the institution if we agree that people have a right to at least compete for the jobs? Right. Um, but they often go to this, sometimes people say this operational effectiveness argument. My life goal is to redefine operational effectiveness. We need mixed uh, yeah. gender groups we we all work better and we have a broad range of types of thinking and decision making etc um but we're really conscious about you'll you'll see if you kind of look carefully at all of our documentation we we'll yeah. always make sure to say uh we recognize that it's women's right to be able to compete to serve to be involved in the decision and it makes the process better, the outcomes more enduring, the admission more successful, et cetera. And I think that that really relates back to this framework that yeah. we don't want. We have to be really careful to make sure that women don't have to prove themselves as being more, better, above That's, in order to realize their rights.
0: So they, fundamentally, it's about equality,
1: absolutely, and, and
0: not gender per se. It's the quality a
1: quality of opportunity, and, and the fact that we have blind spots, we have barriers that some of them are intentional, and some of them are just because people hadn't thought about the fact that, you know, women would need different equipment. And yeah, so,
0: exactly, yeah. But, I mean, I, I, it always struck me, and certainly in Northern Ireland it struck me, that the conflict that had gone on for basically 30 years had, in a way, preserved older gendered attitudes. Um, and I found that in the South we had moved on. And in the North, it was very old-fashioned, just the the view of of women, that they would be there making the tea and putting the jam on the scones that wouldn't be expected to speak. So it was actually conflict had a hugely genderizing impact of reinforcing reinforcing these stereotypes.
1: And And then similarly, Mm. I might, might, then we often talk to and hear from women about how the end of conflict or disruption of it that either leads to escalation or a resolution presents opportunities to leapfrog. Frog forward, right? Because you're redrafting constitutions, you're reformulating yeah. government. So, to the same to the same scale.
0: But there's a perilous moment, though. You can have women involved, like, and this happened with the Women's Coalition. You can have the women involved in the Good Friday Agreement, and then subsequently, the the waters f- flow in in front of them, and yep. you're back again. And they're suddenly they're out of politics. I mean that. How do you overcome that moment where, even where women are involved in a peace agreement, they end up not getting into the structures of power thereafter? I mean, that's the kind of a, that's the dodgy threshold, isn't it?
1: And it it happens everywhere, both in in informal processes and other places that, You see, that is the the so-called Arab Spring uh, Mm. revolution in Sudan, Mm. women, young people, two thirds, three quarters of protesters, demonstrators, Mm. organizers, like really strategic in terms of sending people here, calling for demonstrations, protests. When uh, al-Bashir then resigned, they were the ones saying, "Nope, we all we have to keep going. We have to get the military out of running the government. But then informal processes start and even when they're literally the ones, the majority of the people leading it, uh, they're not around the table. And and so why is that and and how do we get around that? There's a few things. Um, One, quotas. You know, people, North Americans tend to be allergic to quotas and and hate the term and hate the word. Um, If you see it as a temporary way to fix uh, injustices and historic imbalances. Uh, so when we actually name, this is important. So that that's one thing. The other thing is that many women in, who've been in those circumstances say politics is such a misogynistic space that I don't want to be in it longer Right. Term. Yes. So first of all, it takes a ton of money, which mm-hmm. I don't have as much, nearly as much access to. I get um, targeted and harassed and increasingly, you know, the, the online violence that women face yeah, and the, the yep. threats and the harassment that they experience is dramatic. Uh, but, uh, you know, you, you know very well, yeah. Monica McWilliams and others talked about the, oh, yeah. the harassment that they received.
0: Prime Minister O'Tearn uh, uh, from New Zealand, I mean, hounds of exactly. on social media. And yeah. so
1: women are saying, do it. You know, I, I don't want to be in that space because mm. uh, I... You know, I still also have a lot of other responsibilities, and this is not something that I see as, as a place where I can be as effective. So yeah,
0: yeah.
1: It, that, that window, that place uh, where things can kind of go either way is, is a huge area. And, and you see also when, you know, when there's a vacuum of power, there mm. are a lot of forces that come in to fill that vacuum. And I'm looking to Sudan, for example. Mm. Uh, you see a lot of uh, the private sector, foreign governments, others who will come in and say, and move very quickly Uh, In closed door conversations, in ways that exclude women, and then that kind of amplifies. So
0: now, a good attention to it. uh, um, it This brings us to quite an important part of women and security, which is the empowerment of women um, and their participation and their promotion. Because uh, I was amused because it it struck me as so uh, as as so um, so true. That women often won't speak in a public arena unless they know what they're talking about, and this is not something <laughs> that affects men, who are quite happy to stand up and chance their arm. But do you come across that a lot, where you have you know very talented women who are you know just on the should be leaders, and they just haven't got the encouragement, and that's part of what your mandate is. Is and, and how do you do that? How do you yeah. how do you encourage them to step forward in the face of the kind of misogynistic yeah. onslaught that they can face? Yeah. You know.
1: I mean, you started with the word empowerment, and that's a word that uh, there's a lot of discussion around right. in this space. In part because um, you'll see a lot of language, in, and this is not what you used, but around like women need to be given a voice, et cetera. Mm. Right now, there's my. I'd rather focus on we actually need to be listening to them. Right, so it's not that that I anyone can give you the voice. Everybody has a voice. It's how are we listening to it? Part of Part of how we have to think about that, I think, is that first of all, women are behaving rationally. They often right. are punished, quote unquote, yeah. for speaking out, um, especially women of color. I mean, this is something that we realize. Remember the whole lean in movement, Sheryl yeah. uh, Sandberg yeah. and wanting women to, uh, you know, speak up, ask for what Sharp you want, doing. Sharp elbows, exactly. all that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah. You know, white women like myself tend to actually have success with that strategy. Right. When um, racialized women in Canada tend to ask for promotion or assert what they want, they tend to, to be punished for it. They're yeah. viewed as aggressive and entitled and not deserving, et cetera. So we have to, I think, recognize there's a rash, there's rationality behind that it behavior. Just, yeah. um, the other thing, and this is a, a big thing I think we all will be well-served from, is actually really redefining leadership. Right. So these toxic versions of, of leadership where a leader is directive, doesn't listen, is decisive at all times, um, you know, shows no emotion, doesn't yeah. recognize people's yeah. humanity. It doesn't serve men and it doesn't serve women. Well, it's not
0: true of men. I mean, men are incredibly emotional, and uh, but it's seen as like, you know, pride or fire or, you know, vigor Passion, or something, but yes. it is actually emotion. Yeah. I mean,
1: anger is an emotion. <laughs> anger
0: is an emotion, <laughs> yeah. and very often it's an uncontrolled yeah. emotion. So, yeah. this idea that men are not emotional is actually nonsense. Absolutely. And yeah. Well, yeah.
1: I mean, war, what, what's well, what is that? Than, it's completely irrational than but, trying yeah. to kill someone else yeah, because yeah. you want your way? I mean, it's. So, so that, you know, and I've worked with so many women in, in communities. I'm thinking about South Sudan when um, after the referendum between uh, North and South and South decided to become a country. And when we we're talking about uh, running for office and we we're going to have elections and so many women were saying, I'm just not qualified. I'm just mm. not qualified. Mm. So for, what makes you qualified to be a, a member of parliament? You know, and I'd say, do you have... Do you, do you feel like you're connected to your community? Yeah. Well, yeah. Do you understand what most people's top concerns are? Yeah. Do you have a vision for how you want things to be different? Yeah. It's not that, you know, parliamentary procedure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, who cares? Yeah, yeah, uh, You'll learn that. And yeah. everybody will learn it. And one of the traps I, we also see every once in a while is when there's a new parliament formed, et cetera, we'll have countries or groups, he'll say, and then we're going to do training for the women, women members of part, the new women, new members of parliament. And we're always saying, well, what about the men? Men,
0: and yeah, exactly, we, yeah. You can't
1: just assume everybody who shows up in a job is yeah. exceptionally qualified. But to some degree, many women do have that assumption, too. Yeah. So, um, I mean, is it the that case that,
0: yeah, is it the case that you, you really can't make much progress on gender unless you bring men along on the journey, too?
1: 100%. 100%.
0: And that's a tough one, isn't it?
1: It sure is. Yeah. And, and I mean, I, I'd love to hear more from you about this, about what you think we can do better, differently, what resonates with you. We want to not, not we don't want to stop talking about women, but we also want men to see this as a shared struggle.
0: Well, yeah, I know. It's really interesting because I remember there was a journalist many, many years ago and, and she dressed up as a man in, I think, London, somewhere in England, and spent the day as a man or a day or two. And she was asked what was the impression. She says, "I'm exhausted. So I'm, t- I'm knackered. She said, constantly For having what? to, from pretending to be a man. i constantly have to pretend to assert myself. <laughs> I'm have to push my way through these things." She says, "I'm just, yeah. knack- I'm just absolutely knackered being a man." It was like, and I think there is there is truth in the received roles that you yeah. that you have as a man and that is expected of you yeah. to be a man on on whatever scale or level, you know, and. Uh, my daughter forced me to dress in a jumpsuit and put on a, a necklace and see what I... It, we were all trying it on. It was just kind of funny. And I, I, I said, well, I understand why... What, it, I found it hugely liberating just not having to be a man it was kind of a relief. It was... I, it's weird, and and it doesn't come natural. You learn it, and yeah. you learn it in a very Western way. Mm. Um, and it's all, I think in, in many ways it's a clash of civilizations because... Um, And again, the long hand of history, Roman Empire, very much focused on death and the military and death and honor and and conquest and, and eradication. I mean, the Romans eradicated societies. They didn't incorporate them. They eradicated Celtic Gaul. They eradicated Celtic Britain. They didn't come to Ireland. Um, But then you have empires, both in France and Britain, that emerge from the Roman Empire, create a reflection of themselves in North America. So both Canada and the United States are effectively a continuum from this very male macho condition, you know. And the Victorians carried it on with this whole idea of manliness, you know, manliness. And they talked about it because they felt they were under threat because machines were displacing them and so on. So I do think, yeah, we're we're all caught up in a bit of a nightmare about what the assumed roles are, and I'm I'm very taken with your idea of kind of disaggregating what empowerment means. That empowerment, if you say to women, as you you suggest, is, well, we're trying to inject some male empowerment into them, rather than saying, well, what is actually your experience? And is this the best way to carry on society, you know?
1: Well, and I I loved the way that you explained that it hurts men, too, and Mm. I, I think that's maybe the biggest challenge that I face right now in Mm. in advocacy in this job is really trying to get people to feel and men to feel and understand how they also are harmed by Mm. very narrow notions of masculinity. Mm. And not to say that things aren't good that, you know, it's very complex and people have to be in the exact right mindset to receive that kind of message. Um, but to to come from a place where you can actually identify what what is it that you really want to do? What are you best skilled at doing? Is it there's a, a colleague of, uh, I've heard speak from the U.S. military, and she said I think first about the fact that we've kind of artificially sorted people for so long. You know, you're a woman, you're probably mm. going to go into medical services. You're a man, you're going to we're going to assume you want to be in this combat role, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. And what we've what we've lost from doing that, um, and it's really really hard to convey, not just that people are better off when there's greater quality. we know this mm. from, you know, when there's better childcare, yeah. it serves men in the organization as well. When there is greater flexibility of working schedule, especially with younger people joining the workforce, yeah. um, younger people in workforces already, the, the steps that we take generally uh, in support of what women have been asking for, for a long time, yeah. do tend to benefit men. That's one part, but there's also the kind of the more fundamental part of how are you actually harmed? Yeah as a society and as an as and individuals as well when when your your future is, is prescribed by your gender in a way that doesn't necessarily that, that causes you to have to perform in, in ways that may not be
0: Yeah, and I think it has very difficult. real effects. I mean we have in Ireland very high suicide rate amongst mm. effect, mostly young men who presume who are feel the pressure of all of this. One of the other things I wanted to talk to you about in this context is social media because I think a lot of young people feel hugely I use that word again empowered by social media but also intimidated by it and um, you, you know where has has the social media revolution has it been empowering for rights or disempowering? I mean, some people have said to me, well, you have these informal networks within civil society amongst women that have been empowered by social media. They can contact each other, they can network and in virtual media. So that's been empowering in one way. And in another way, it's empowered very toxic forces in our yeah. society. Where do you think the, ba- I mean, we obviously can't get rid of social media or technology, yeah. but where is, where is the balance to be struck when it comes to rights and, and the impact of social media and technology on it?
1: Well, in terms of your question about, you know, the, has it been better or worse? Like wh- what has yeah. the impact been? Um, I-, I was one of the people who really had great hope that it would be a big equalizer, right? right. Like we could all, uh, you know, it'd be a space where force and, and might, physical might, yeah. was not the determinant of access to a, uh, a space uh, recognizing that women tend to be have less mobility than men, so they're mm. in the home more often. So this was like a way to participate in the public square in, yeah. in a different way. We haven't seen that turn out uh, to the same to the degree that it, many of us, including me, really hoped it would. So yeah. part of it is due to online harassment threats, et cetera. So right. we, and we know there's big gender dimensions to that. So I was looking at a study a little while ago about um, online harassment and. It tends to go through something like four main steps, where it starts generally with someone online being harassed with kind of accusations of um, basically Bias the issue or something. itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then yeah. it goes to s- things like personal attacks. Then it goes to effectively disinformation kind of campaigns, uh, and then it goes and to threats. physical threats. So. As it relates to women, people tend to start on the third or fourth step. So you go straight to, you know, you're a prostitute because you work with uh, Western forces or you're a puppet of the West or whatever it is. Um, And that or that people go through the the one to four steps much more quickly. So women are are very much targeted in that way. The other thing is there's still a huge gender digital divide. So even within families, we saw this hugely during the pandemic. Many families have one home computer, kids would be at home studying. So we, we saw this documented that in most parts of the world, a husband would have that primary access to the internet, the phone, the computer, then it would be the kids, then it would be the woman. She's, um,
0: she gets it at midnight. Exactly, and, and, yeah. and
1: access to cell phones, women still have Dramatically less access to cell okay. phones, cell phone minutes, power to charge it, et cetera. Mm. So mm. there are these things that then compound as well, and the inequality increases. So that's a big thing, I think, as it relates to the, right. the leveling power of, of social media. There's mm. both very specific issues on access, and then there's the, the tone and the space of the discourse. And I can't, I, I truly couldn't imagine being a woman politician mm. right now in right. any country of the world. We, we had our governor general, I don't know if you saw a few days ago. Um, she's, do, she's been doing a lot of work and a lot of awareness raising about the sheer hate speech that she receives through their Twitter account, through the mm, governor general's mm, Twitter account. Mm. And that she says she gets it, um, you know, slander and, and speech because she's a woman, yeah. because she's indigenous yeah. and because she's older. She said, I get a lot of like, you know, I won't even repeat the, the awful terms that we yeah, use. And you, this is yeah. our governor general. Uh, so it's it's really a, a, a tough time for men, too, but the, the, yeah, the yeah. attacks on women are certainly pronounced.
0: Yeah, again, it's one of those kind of surprising things of how resilient misogyny is and, and how you kind of head it off at the pass. And, and it, it seems to me it can never be too early to start teaching children about, you know, yeah, misogyny is a default unless you kind of yeah. actively counter it. You know? And
1: as we see, some of the best campaigns against domestic violence are the ones that where there are other men's voices saying, "You I'm know, saying. real men don't beat their wives. Yeah. Real men don't behave this way. The coolest yeah, yeah. among us don't do this. Do this, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And that's the type of, of movement that we need on all kinds of things, including women in decision making, and and more men saying, "I'm not going to be on." in a meeting that is all men to talk about a broad range of issues and not just again just not just adding one makes the difference but what are we missing from this table and I I, it's not good for us
0: well exactly yeah now in terms of the UN declaration and so on it came uh, out of a certain moment in history in 1948 um, we'd been through the most destructive uh, period Uh, not just World War one but repeated very soon with World War two the Holocaust um, you had, uh, I mean, horrible crimes, massive destruction, um, tens of millions of people killed, and you had nuclear bombs exploded in, in populated cities and so on. But out of this uh, dreadful scenario, um, you had the UN created and uh, Bretton Woods Agreement and so on. But then we do have the declaration itself. I mean, it, it has the mark... Of its time, it doesn't really refer to gender. It mm-hmm. turns, it talks about family being the unit. Um, it's got kind of quaint notions about privacy, which, frankly, is under a lot of strain at the moment. But how well do you think it's it's aged?
1: <laughs> Pretty well, yeah. I think in terms of what it calls for. I mean, it, it gives you know there shall not be discrimination based on, and then it's it's mm. a range of factors. Um, you know, sex being one of them mm. uh, doesn't, as you said, it doesn't reference gender in that way. But if you also want to, the spirit of it is quite clear. It's yeah. that You know, every human, regardless of where they were born, what culture they're born into, what religion, what mm. what body they live they inhabit, uh, is is entitled to the same rights mm. and dignity. And I think that the language is, as you said, it it wouldn't be uh, it wouldn't be the language necessarily achieved today. But I don't think I think if you read it. It
0: also, it doesn't read as irrelevant to me. Yeah, no, sadly, it reads very relevantly when it talks about the dignity of the human person and yeah. the right to fair elections yeah. and representative yeah. government and privacy and property yeah. and, and dignity and so yeah. on, and an income and a roof over your head. So from that point of view, I think, yeah, it does speak to a, a lot of universal kind of truths. But we live in, at the moment, in very difficult circumstances I mean I think it's taken a turn that we we never expected between Gaza and Ukraine and and just a general sense of a age of uncertainty and anxiety so and you've worked in a lot of different organizations Canadian government NATO UN and so on I mean if you had your your kind of um, your wish list of how can we best promote those fundamental ideals that are in the UN declaration what are the practical things that need to be done to push through which, you know, let's let's say it's a temporary kind of reversion to more um, uh, to, to more older forms of uh, of politics and war and so on to push through. What are the kind of things that that really need to be done?
1: The older I get, the more I'm convinced we have to start in schools with kids mm. at a very very young age. Mm. Um, you know, I used to think well. We have to we have to make sure that people in university who are studying conflict and governance mm. and political science and economics, et cetera, we need to make sure they're thinking about gender and the ways that yeah. women and men and, and uh, sexuality impacts all kinds of things, et cetera, et cetera. And the more years I do this, the more I think we need to go to preschools and yeah. and, and talk about the blueprints that are being laid in, in people's minds. I mean that the the family really is your first uh, the first place that many people understand power dynamics, right? yeah. and
0: yeah.
1: making sure people are understanding if there's force, physical force is, is an element of your family. What does that? How does that imprint you in right. the longer term? Mm. Um, what are we actually teaching people about inherent rights and dignity of all? Mm. You know, we we mm. have to, I think, go further and further, yeah, <laughs> I guess, up the the life
0: cycle, s- as the her, life yeah. cycle
1: to uh, to really get. Kids thinking about this work right. um, and this these issues. Uh, another thing, if I if I had this this wish list, this magic wand, um, would be a whole lot more collaboration between the global north and the global south. Because right. there's a lot of uh, disinformation out in the world right now. The idea that uh, that human rights are a Western driven concept or that even gender equality is something that right. is kind of created by the West or the global North and being imposed on the rest. And it's just simply, first of all, it's untrue. Yeah. As I mentioned, there's there's women in different communities. It comes back to leadership looks different yeah. in different places. Maybe they haven't formed city councils with a mayor that is, you know, that that has 50% women on, mm-hmm. on the council, but there are women who play very significant, influential role. So really unpacking power in a a different way Um, and recognizing I I was I've been doing a bit of uh, prep ahead of this time of the 75th anniversary Mm. of the declaration, uh, the U.N. Declaration and and learning what I didn't know before. You know, we always associate Eleanor Roosevelt with uh, with the declaration. And and of course, uh, she was a, a huge champion of it. But there were delegates from, women delegates from India, from the right. Dominican Republic, from Pakistan, who did things like saying, um, you know, what's the line, instead of all men are born free and equal, the, the declaration now says all human beings, beings. are born free yeah, and equal. Yeah. That was not a American-driven <laughs> yeah. change of language. Uh, so a big thing I think we need to to do is deprogram many, many of our minds uh, from thinking that this is a... Western or global North issue, right. and really recognizing what both leadership, what what influence, what power, uh, what more equal forms of power distribution can look like in different contexts, mm-hmm. and recognizing and really appreciating the history that, ex- that actually exists in different places. I, yeah. I don't know about you, but I, I feel a lot of the, the history that I've read has, I, I would say women have been written out of it, but I don't think they were ever really written into it um, in many ways Well, I think
0: they're actively written out of it. I mean, yeah, we're, we're doing this project, 50 Irish Lives in Canada, and we're, we're scrambling around trying to find women to profile because if they achieve things, that it's either anonymous, anonymously <laughs> refer, referred to um, and uh, yeah no, absolutely women have been have been written out of the story you know yeah. and, it, and it takes an active effort yeah. to kind of put them in there you know um, and uh, yeah they're, they're, they're invisible in history yeah. and therefore when you when you have a daughter and, and I have two daughters where are the examples they don't come across them you know and, and
1: yet they were
0: there right? W- well yeah, it's half the population <laughs> and, and, and um, you know and, and so we, we find for example that uh, women religious Um, were hugely powerful because it was one of the few places where women could actually become seriously serious leaders with power and management requirements and money and property Uh, Mother Teresa Deese came over from Farnham and set up the LaRachel schools in in Canada for example Um, quite a number of them to educate women and and young boys, uh, girls and boys Um, but she was a huge power broker because she was you know, running a major organization, and the religious did fa- facilitate women in a way that um, uh, had been impossible. Uh, and Murphy, uh, well, Anne Jemison, uh, named Murphy, was from Dublin, and she came to. She became a famous travel writer by dint of her talent, um, and not from a great background. But she was a great travel writer. She came to Canada and wrote um, summer, "Summer Rambles and Winter Studies."
1: This is uh,
0: what years, generally? 1830s, late wow. 1830s. And she actually went into the outback of Ontario, accompanied by a uh, half-European, half-Indigenous guy, um, and shocked polite society in Toronto because she had been in the outback in a canoe with this fellow and uh, came back to write about it. But she wrote uh, scathingly about the assumption that in if, it, if basically 20% of all women, were, it was assumed, would become prostitutes because they, could, they wouldn't marry. But it was also seen as necessary to create a valve for man's energies, They right, needed prostitution. Right, right. And she was absolutely outraged by this idea that a woman had to be a prostitute in the, in the mid-19th century. And she's, she's very taken with this idea that women didn't have opportunities for education or careers. Um, and
1: Where do we
0: find her writings now? Oh no, you, her winter, uh, summer, uh, summer rambles and winter studies was rep- reprinted a number of times. She's very funny. She hated Toronto, <laughs> hated the <laughs> hated the cold, and it was really cold. in those days it was very cold. Was totally taken with another officer, a guy called Fitzgibbon, who was an Irish officer, a very handsome, dashing fellow. The marriage didn't work out to this guy Jameson, but she was a fantastic woman because she came from, she was a governess and then kind of she pushed through and became a great writer. And she's very, very funny and and um, very de- a great uh, descriptive writer. So you can you can. There's a bookshop here, McGarrin's I'll give them a shout out. McGarrin's is a great antiquarian bookshop. Set up by Irish Canadian family, and um, you can go in there, and he'll he'll ferret out whatever you're looking for. So she's she's a great writer. Um, We have um, God, what's her name? Mother Barnes, um, the the Witch of Plum Hollow on the Road to Brockville, and uh, she was from Ireland, and uh, she um, she was married and then married again to a cobbler who took off, and she was left with a clatter of children. So she had to make some money and she had this cottage and um, she would charge 25 cents to tell your future. (laughs) So uh, she made a fortune. She was widely known around the whole area. People would travel forever to come to this woman who would tell the future. And a young lawyer went in and she said, oh, you're going to Canada will be a free country and you'll be its first prime minister. John A. MacDonald had heard about her as a young lawyer and went in and paid his 25 cents and um you know she's another that's again another you know again a great irish tradition she claimed to be the seventh daughter of a seventh daughter um like the seventh son of a seventh son as a faith healer in Ireland um so that was her kind of coping mechanism you know and um, we've come across i mean there's some there's some great women in our in our profiles but you have to you have to work hard to, look. To, to find them, you know. And, I, I you know. have
1: the good fortune of often getting to speak with Canadian diplomats before they go on postings, oh, especially yeah. ambassadors, high commissioners, yeah. and talking about women, peace, and security, et cetera. And one of the the things I say is, look at the his like examine the history of women's leadership in your country. Yeah, it's not going to be in the the first few pages of your briefings you probably have to ask for it but when you get there ask historians ask women academics ask women community leaders to come and brief you on yep. you know really monumental women on the impact of women and and so many have come back and said you know first of all I was among the only in the diplomatic community yeah, <laughs> these yeah, stories yeah it gives you immense confidence when you're talking about the importance of women's inclusion because again you know it's not imposed from the outside you, there's rich histories etc oh, yeah. you're, you're tapping back often into pre-colonial times where oh, yeah. colonialism had in fact reinforced patriarchal structures or transferred or introduced um, and they, they found it just fascinating the degree to oh. which it is not uh, I mean the first
0: the, the first shared. yeah absolutely I mean the first woman the first sorry, the were first acknowledged software programmer was the only legitimate daughter of Lord Byron, Ada King, because she worked with Charles uh, Babbage, who was making a computer, effectively. And uh, she, he saw it as a calculator, and she saw it as a, <laughs> as a computer. And she she's regarded as the first software programmer, but oh, God, we forgot about her, you know?
1: Oh, never knew about her. Yeah,
0: and and, uh, and if you look at Ireland, you're absolutely right. I mean, we uh, the Ireland I grew up in is, is gone. It's a totally different country, and much better for it. We've had the marriage equality referendum. But the people who made that happen were people like Mary Robinson and Mary McAleese and Nell McCafferty and people like that. Um, women who said that's enough is enough. You know, and on contraception for example, where contraception was banned in Ireland, what did they do? They all took the took the, the bus up and the train up to Belfast and bought condoms and brought them back. You know, hundreds of them and of course at the at the customs (laughs) post they said they're they're for our personal use (laughs) and they would have a thousand in a in a in a a, a, but there was a way of defying and and breaking through and mary robinson of course and i think she was to go back she was in in beijing at that famous she she had that famous meeting um where women women peace and security again mary Mary robinson was there and she was you know uh she broke through i mean she was the first she, she famously shook hands with Jerry Adams yeah. as, as a way of, of brokering peace and so on. Um, we had the women's movement as well, the, the peace yeah, movement in Northern Ireland.
1: Mary Robinson. Yeah. Um, some of the stories that she's told uh, just they really reinforce exactly what you're saying on a big scale and on a little scale. And mm. I, I remember hearing her talk one time about uh, how her own personal security detail. You know, these things, oh, yeah. uh, I guess I, I may, I'm going to get the details wrong, but basically she had like four or five. Um, male soldiers who were assigned to her to keep security, etc. And she said, I'd like to have uh, some women personal security protection. And they said, well, you know, that's not possible. They're not trained. And she said, well, let's train them. Yeah, yeah. And then, of course, she had half women you and know yep. a significant number she she recognized the importance of that both for just the signal of it as well but that it sent everywhere she went that yeah. women were responsible for her security too and it was yeah. just a great example always in my, my mind oh, yeah. and if i can too we um as it relates to the the un declaration so in 1990. 91, 90, whatever, what was uh, the 50th anniversary? So nineteen ninety. Your mouth would be better than mine <laughs>
0: anyway, but yeah. Um,
1: 98, I guess. Um, the, the 50th anniversary of the UN Declaration, the yeah. Universal Declaration, uh, my dad and a, a couple others decided that they were going to put on a big conference in Edmonton, Alberta, where I grew up. And, right. you know, I can't emphasize enough Edmonton at that time. Frontier town. Now, Pretty rough. Yeah. You know, people, it's not a It's not a thoroughfare of international yeah. travel. It's not a hub of international conferences, et cetera. It ended up being the largest conference to commemorate the 50th anniversary. And Mary Robinson came. Desmond right. Tissue came, a number of others. She was then the, the UN High Commissioner for, for human, human Rights. Human Rights, yeah. And I was a, a teenager at the time. And, and it was just an amazing... An amazing thing. I remember her speaking. I remember her talking about human rights and mm-hmm. human dignity and mm-hmm. uh, leadership that, that looked different. And uh, it was really a, for, for a young Irish Canadian yeah, uh, yeah. living in Alberta to have those luminaries come and these giant figures that, you know, had had shaped so much to come to Edmonton in the 90s uh, and talk about human rights Mm -hmm. uh, in a way that both was relevant to Canada domestically, you know, especially as it relates to indigenous people. We talked about language rights, all kinds of things. Uh, but always remember Mary Robinson in Edmonton in the 90s talking about human rights
0: yeah 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 and that did that set you on your course then because you you're in in educational terms you did a you did you were in business and commerce for your primary degree and then you <laughs> kind of moved out of that yeah yeah
1: uh, hard to say I, I think I've always been a um, a big believer in gender equality. it's just right. been something I don't think there's a moment I can pinpoint but between my mom and dad they both. Mm. practiced it and I just uh, I saw inequality and just felt compelled to respond to to that there's a um, yeah Um, yeah and then uh, there were a number of experiences where I felt like seeing the world come to Edmonton and being in Edmonton and looking at the rest of the world, I really wanted to be engaging in a different way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was before the internet, (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) before the wheel was invented and fire was just coming along.
0: Yeah. So, uh,
1: but it was a, yeah, being, being able to see the way in particular for me that women had shifted paradigms which sounds jargony but we're redefining leadership and yeah. we're changing the face of what i associated as a national leader a president of a country yeah. um and and really not it, it was very powerful and it, i still find it to be when people talk not just about victims of conflict and war etc but about women's strength and about An community agency. strength and mm. civilians and the ways the powers that that people in communities have to make change. I find that exceptionally energizing, mm, and mm. A, amazing space to be in it. Just much more natural space that I'm drawn to. Yeah. Uh, yeah, than yeah. Kind of, Pure humanitarian relief and, and response, even as crucially important as that is.
0: Yeah, and uh, my my final question I have to ask you about O'Neill and your <laughs> Irish heritage, which you've just mentioned. Have you heard the name before? I've Last heard time. that name before somewhere. But uh, were you conscious of being kind of Irish Canadian and the Irish connection? Were you yeah. very conscious of that growing up? Yeah,
1: very proudly. So yeah, um, I grew up in a city just outside of Edmonton we had a lot of Irish uh, community members a lot of Irish dancers Irish pubs Um, and yeah it was always a I always felt a lot of uh, affinity between Ireland Mm. and Canada which has only increased the the older I've gotten and the more I, I see us in the world's Stage, you know, that our relative sizes, the way that we we really value multilateral institutions, mm-hmm. the way we associate mm-hmm. ourselves with uh, there's
0: a huge overlap with
1: collaboration, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. and the, the way we recognize we need partnerships to get ahead, um, all kinds of things. But yeah, I was always certainly felt that way, and uh, had never had never really um, yeah had done that. And then when I went to I was about I don't know nineteen or twenty, I of course backpacked around Europe as many young people mm. do and I decided well I'm going to go to every O'Neill pub <laughs> in Ireland because well, those are my people and I think after about the fourth pub yeah, in one I day I, I realized the, yeah, yeah. that's not a sustainable, sustainable
0: physically not sustainable promotion. no exactly no. uh
1: so yeah I and did Ireland meet
0: there. your expectations oh it's amazing yeah yeah of course and yeah how
1: could it not yeah how could it not yeah this Good. is an amazing place
0: good well listen i hope you get back soon and Thank thanks so you. much for coming in to, to chat it's been well, absolutely fascinating we
1: have a fabulous team at our embassy there too nancy Smythe. Your, nancy has your done an amazing job
0: it's, she is just terrific and you know um, she's finishing up i i think and she's done three years hugely hugely impactful i mean she's just been everywhere i mean she's she's been to so many places in ireland she's been back to them again and they're saying <laughs> hi nancy down in your roster. <laughs> And uh, no, she's got out and about, and she's been really impactful with uh, with our business community, with our politicians. She's just really shown how it can be done and how you can uh, one one woman as a leader in the embassy can make a huge impact and, l- and literally alter the the tenor of the bilateral relationship. It's Fantastic. terrific because it has to be, it's a two-way process, and she's still done an absolutely terrific job. So, yeah, we I'm glad you mentioned her. Uh, you we
1: know, have such great affinity between Canadians yeah. and, and uh, the Irish that I, I think it would be awful if we didn't have such strong diplomatic representation. Yeah, and we had, had, had uh,
0: Susan Drisdell there, who's their economic attache for the last number of years, and she's been doing a great job as well. So... Um, yeah, it's best been great to have her.
1: Best posting in the posting in the world. Well, yeah, you, that's so. what we like to think, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And here you're facing an Ottawa winter where we hope you'll come out saying the same thing.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. No, it's been a fascinating journey here, and precisely because of um, exploring the kind of the Irish connection. And we sometimes forget. I mean, I sometimes tease Canadians, saying, "Well, you think Canada was invented by Pierre Trudeau? No. In fact, you have a really interesting history, and it parallels the Irish history. So, but that's a that is a rabbit hole we could spend a long time going in. I'll listen um, to that episode. Yes, exactly. So, listen. Thanks again for coming in. It's Thank been a you. delight and a pleasure, and really enlightening having you with us for thanks
1: this. Thanks so much to you and your team, and for all that Ireland does on this issue globally. You're an exceptionally reliable partner in peace and security.
0: Yeah. Thank you, Jacqueline.
1: Thank you.